Incarceration brings a host of life-changing circumstances. Within the prison system, rights that civilians take for granted outside vanish and the world becomes much smaller. Access to healthcare, intellectual stimulation, the ability to play, and privacy all drastically change. And for transgender people, these changes can be significantly jarring. Nearly 5,000 transgender people are incarcerated in state prisons since 2022. Several reports have been made on the experiences that may arise with trans and gender diverse people serving time in prison. These may include one's wish to be institutionalized with those of the same gender, requests to receive gender affirming care, usually only eligible if state funds allows it, and to avoid harassment and discrimination from fellow people in the prison. Unfortunately, the experiences of some trans and gender diverse people have been highlighted as negative in prison, given stigma and discrimination from people as well as the lack of support to express one's true gender identity. Programs have been started across the United States to begin addressing the needs of this population in prisons. For example, California was one of the first states to allow the funding of gender-affirming surgery for an in-prison trans patient through the Medicaid system. Illinois has been the second state to do the same. Some trans patients visit jails to receive gender-affirming care for the first time. They may begin the journey of transitioning within the prison system. Here, we see the reality of many people within our country, such that jails and prisons serve as ways for our most vulnerable populations, including LGBTQ people, to get health care. If we advocate for transgender rights in the civilian world, we must also include the rights to health care and mitigation of health disparities that impact trans and gender diverse people inside the prison system. Starting this conversation requires a deeper understanding of the important work being done to address the needs of this population. From there, we can see how progress has been made and what other systems can be doing to achieve health equity for this group. Please join me as I welcome today's guest, an expert on the provision of care to incarcerated trans and gender diverse people, Dr. Lamenta Sweeney Conway. Hello. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Lamenta Sweeney Conway. Thank you so much for being here with us and welcome to the Equity Podcast. Lamenta Sweeney Conway, MD, MPH, was born and raised in Chicago's Englewood community and educated in the Chicago public schools. After completing her master's in public health and epidemiology and biostatistics, she then went to medical school at Rush Medical College, then trained in both internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Illinois. She has since celebrated over 25 years as a physician, with most of her career teaching in top academic hospitals in the Midwest. In her current professional role, she is Deputy Chief of Medicine for the Illinois Department of Corrections, where she and her team are responsible for the medical care of over 30,000 offenders in custody at the Illinois State Prisons. In her leadership role at the state, she has forged numerous community-based and academic medicine partnerships to improve the care of the population she supports. Under her leadership, they have also created innovative solutions for the care of incarcerated transgender patients and have created pathways for gender-affirming surgeries. Outside of medicine, Dr. Conway is known by most as simply Sweetie, a childhood name that followed her first into her semi-professional career as a singer of soulful gospel music and later into professional circles from the hospital floors to the boardroom. Most of her pre-med mentees affectionately know her as Dr. Sweetie, a name they created. She is known best for her warm and exuberant personality and bedside manner as a physician and clinical educator devoted to the care of vulnerable populations. Welcome. Thank you. That sounded good listening to it. 
<laughs> Thank you, Jalen. And I wanted to get begin with talking about last month that recently ended. We just finished Pride Month. And part of the many hats that you wear involves advocating for transgender rights. Do you consider yourself an ally of the LGBTQ plus community? And if so, what does allyship mean to you? So to me, I do, first of all, I do consider myself an ally and I'm a proud ally and I'm very, I feel grateful uh, because it just, being an ally simply just aligns Jalen with, with who I am. And I love hearing people's stories and what matters to people. And so therefore it becomes very easy when you understand people and what people's needs are to really try to stand up for people uh, who need an extra hand and an extra push. So yes, I do consider myself an ally and I I do think it's important for us to be allies. And we need allies. And it's amazing that you have, you know, stated that and you're proud to be one. And thank you so much. Uh, Allyship means uh, a lot to people in the community and we definitely need allies. Um, I honestly think, you know, uh, now and so much in the future, so many people in the future as we, you know, Um, talk about transgender rights and, you know, how are people affected by that. So Illinois has been one of the most progressive states regarding LGBTQ plus rights and providing equitable access to health care for transgender patients. Yet its incarceration rate stands out internationally. I said internationally. That's more than entire countries at 497 per 100,000 people, according to the Prison Policy Initiative. And like all other states, the state government must provide health care for its imprisoned population that may include or that does include transgender people. How are you drawn into the work that you do now with transgender individuals who are incarcerated in Illinois state prisons? So uh, thank you for that question as well. So interestingly, uh, Jalen, a lot of people do not know about correctional health care that I don't think this that just says everything that you need to know about why that is a problem, because what it means is that we put away an entire population of mostly black and brown people, to be quite frank, and we don't care about what happens to them, essentially. I think doctors, students in every walk of life, when you ask the average person, how do people who are incarcerated get help, health care, most people don't know. And worse yet, they have not thought about it. And I will not say that I was any different, even though I consider myself uh, a fierce advocate for vulnerable and underrepresented populations, period. Uh, I don't think that I really knew. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know, too. I didn't know that correct people that were incarcerated, actually, I hadn't even thought about how they would get back and forth to appointments if they were taken care of on site. And unfortunately, uh, and fortunate for today to having this conversation, we can draw attention to the fact that there's many uh, disparate and underrepresented populations, and that's one of them. What happened with me was I was doing the work that I do for underrepresented Black and Brown people, trying to help them get into medical school. At the time, the agency medical director uh, had come to a gala and just really got a chance to experience all of what the foundation that I run and founded, I Am Able Foundation, is all about. He said, you know what? You would be perfect in this role. You're a natural fit. And I was blessed with the opportunity to to be an ally and advocate for 
many underrepresented. Uh, and I think that's most folks that are incarcerated that is in, in its entirety a very vulnerable population. Yes, yes, a very vulnerable vulnerable population and a population we should be mindful about. And that sounds really timely that you were already doing work with veterans, I think you said, and then transition to, again, helping another population that needs um, help. And um, it shows in, you know, your uh, storytelling that you're passionate about it. So that's awesome. Around the time of this recording, the Supreme Court released a decision that affirmed the ability for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ plus people based on freedom of speech. It seems that if LGBTQ plus people are being denied things outside of prisons, they're likely to be denied things inside of them too, particularly related to healthcare. What does discrimination leading to health disparities look like to you? So discrimination. Really, by definition, it means that we're treating people unjustly. Uh, Everyone has the right to have access to a constitutional level of care. And in fact, um, uh, our, um, our, our chief justice officer in the United States made that statement some time ago about the violation of the rights of trans persons Uh, in this country in general, that largely their Eighth Amendment rights had been violated. And so what I would say is what you see in the community is what you will also see in, in the institutions that are created by the community. Right, right. It sounds like discrimination looks like the conversations about who deserves care versus who maybe can wait and, um, you know, doesn't need it right now. And we went through that with COVID uh, tremendously. Uh, so many people in nursing homes and long-term uh, assisted care facilities unfortunately passed away. Uh, and I mean, we're also seeing that in uh, with people who are incarcerated in terms of who gets um, the access to go to the medical visits, their dental visits or whoever, for whatever reason. Um, and we'll, we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, I, I did, did want to say that in Illinois, there's a lot of things that, that need to be fixed and that we are working on and need to be worked on. But I can say that as in terms of the COVID response and our and how we were graded, we were graded very favorably. And I think that does speak to even though there's there's there are these large issues that are legislative because, you know, we talked about that some time ago uh, about how a lot of the advocacy has to happen at another level and that's at a legislative level to actually affect the kind of institutional change that we need to see. But I can say that as the state of Illinois specifically, one of the reasons why we did well with the COVID crisis, at least in our prisons in terms of the laws, is because we did have a lot of advocacy uh, from our state government as it related to the incarcerated population. Everything is not perfect, but I do feel that for us, we had folks really fighting for us. And even the advocates that are, because a lot of times we talk about, and medical students ask, how can they advocate? One of the things the advocates did was to put, uh, apply pressure to, to the legislator and to the governor's office and things like that. They were going to do that anyway, but those voices were heard. And because of that, and also the the free will, of course, of those who are in leadership, 
I think we had a very good response, at least to that crisis. But it just gives you an idea of how people look at things, though. Sure. And thank you for highlighting what the state has done or has been rated uh, as doing those initiatives. So going into more specifically the correctional work, and I also want to mention that my dad uh, works at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, as a corrections officer. So... I am familiar with correctional health care. My grandpa also did. <laughs> I think this is a, um, you know, a very pertinent topic. So according to the Prison Policy Initiative, nearly 5,000 transgender people are incarcerated in state prisons since 2022. Would you tell us about how many of the population that you oversee includes trans people and any other discussion about their demographic makeup? That's a really good question. So it's a changing number. And I also like to start with some definitions. So there is, at least in the state of Illinois, there is a process. So you have those who uh, identify initially or report. So that is, so we have, a, in, in, in a sense, there is a step one and we have to keep track of everyone, right? So there are those who may identify or say, uh, that they are of transgender identity. And then in most prison settings, I can say, uh, and let me just come up with the number first. That would give you the, that's what you really asked for. That's somewhere for us between 150 and 200, depending on the number, the, the, the definition that you're going to use. And that's why I kind of started with definition. But the number is between 150 to 200. And that is because at least with us, there is a process because patients may say that they are transgender, self-identify, but this also needs to be confirmed. So, and just like any diagnosis for gender dysphoria, that is a diagnosis, not being transgender, but the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is something that requires treatment because a patient that is identifies as transgender, but they don't have any dysphoria, don't report dysphoria, they don't necessarily they're not necessarily asking for treatment. They may not need hormone therapy. They may not request uh, uh, certain commissaries or things like that. But if a transgender person also reports dysphoria, then that is something that is confirmed by the mental health wing, at least of our prison. So that's why that's why the numbers are reflected in, in, in two parts, you can say. There are those who come into initial attention, so we may not know them at all. And then once we know them, then there is the second part where they actually are seen and confirmed and then put into our, uh, basically into our database and our clinic system so that we can begin to manage and hopefully support them from a mental health, social, behavioral, and clinical perspective. Right. That part about the evaluation piece first before you're able to actually then support a community, right? Because there also might be reasons why certain people don't identify um, as transgender while in prisons. And that's also the same as we talked about, the same stigma and discrimination that happens out in the community may also be happening in the prisons. Um, but I appreciate you giving us just a number about who we're talking about. And can I comment about what you said? Because what you said is super important. And it's very sad, really. Because these are the parts that you can't always control. Prisons are not inherently safe for anyone. It's sometimes not even safe for the people who work there, as, as your family members that work in correction can tell you. But 
there are not enough eyes and not enough ears to hear uh, and protect people that need protection. And sometimes, you know, they have to protect themselves. And the easiest way to do that is to not identify. Now, obviously, it is our charge and our responsibility to, to, cry, to try to create a safe space as much as we can, especially for a population that is particularly vulnerable. And this kind of goes to like even the recent su Supreme, you talked about the other Supreme Court ruling and then the most recent Supreme Court ruling. It is important that we pay attention to people who, it's not about equality to me, it's about equity. It's about creating a sense of fairness and a sense of justice for people who need, who need it. So that is a challenge in the prison uh, for a number of our trans persons. Uh, and what we do in cases like that is some of those patients will say, I still want to be on the transgender caseload, but I don't want anything that identifies me in a certain way. So for example, some folks might say, hey, I want, I want everything to be clear cut. But then when you do that, you can expose yourself uh, to certain types of problems with just the people that you live with, your, current, your fellow residents. So it's whatever they need in their particular prison that makes them most comfortable. They don't have to have hormone therapy. They don't have to request surgery. They're, but if they want those things, we try to create as safe a space as we that is possible. Yes, yes, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's it's really great to hear that you know you're accommodating, right? The institution that you're a part of is accommodating with that, uh, with people who you know might not want to be on the caseload versus might want to, and like other people convicted of crimes. Trans people are subject to the same close monitoring and regulation of their daily activities by the institution they are in. These regulations can be burdensome and arguably lead to health disparities for trans people who may experience gender incongruence, higher rates of suicide, or depression or anxiety related to experiences of transphobia, aggression, and harassment, to name a few. What types of health disparities do you see that are exacerbated when in prison? Yeah, I, I, of course. I mean, you can't you can't deny that. If it exists in the outside, it exists on the inside. It's, that's just the way it is. So, sure, there's definitely transphobia um, and aggressions and microaggressions, like we often talk about in the Black and Brown community. That's that's real. Um, it's real. It's going to be real in healthcare. It's going to be real in the security or the operations aspects of, you know, of, of prison. You're going to see those types of things. One of the things that the, the state of IDOC does specifically is we, we work really hard on making sure that we educate our leadership, we educate our staff, that we have staff training um, for our correctional officers, have training for our health care. Uh, actually, we had... Um, at IDOC, we had a two-day training by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or the WPATH organization, which is the leading body, really, um, for, uh, for, for trans health. They're the leading authority, not necessarily a certifying body, but definitely a leading authority. And I would say, internationally, they are outside of the endocrinology society. They are the group of people uh, that are really putting together the protocols for healthcare and and mental health care as well. So yes, those type, you know, those are the types of things that we use to try to combat it. But like the outside reflects on the inside, 
of course. In real life, there are some instances where people will say that they're being harassed by people around them, or people might make, for example, not acknowledge their pronouns. That's an uncomfortable thing. So if a person uh, was going by, you know, she and her, and someone keeps calling them he, you know, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable for some of our patients. Now, in terms of uh, access to healthcare, uh, sometimes it does make people not want to pursue, you know, healthcare. But one of the things that we do at our facility, at least, and I think other places are doing this as well, is we, you know, people come in for their routine appointments. They don't actually have to self-declare, you know, meaning that they're not in uh, in a clinic for trans health, if that makes sense. So people come in routinely, yeah, like everyone else would come. But the truth of the matter is, Jalen, if you are doing gender affirming, affirming hormones uh, or hormone therapy and other modifications of your body to treat the dysphoria, you will stand out. And I think that the way that many in our population are using it is they're using, they're becoming advocates, they're becoming peer educators and leaders uh, and standing up in their community. So we do have that in each of our prisons where we have uh, trans people happen to be um, uh, accommodated or, or cared for, we do have special groups that hopefully provide the support that many of them need. I'm sure that it's not uh, enough for everyone, though, for sure. Was that something that was there before you started, or is that something that you helped build? So that was there before I started, but I think the sensitivity to the need has exponentially increased. So, men, so mental health are the ones who've kind of taken on that role of leading group and group therapy. And we also have a, a special program at one of our prisons down in the South, um, which is called PRISM. And I never can remember the full ac- what that acronym need, uh, means, but it's actually for the LGBTQ uh, population in general, not just trans persons. They're a very special place uh, for the vulnerable population, period. And so that's a place where people have an option to transfer to if they if they feel like they want to. They have that option. Uh, others will uh, may request to go to the female uh, prison. So that is an option as well. So there are options. Uh, there are criteria, but there are options for patients to transfer into places where they feel best. And I don't know if you recall one of the movies that I shared at a previous talk. There's some people who don't want to go at all. There's so many different people with different perspectives. Their patients, like uh, in this one movie that I often play in my presentations, and she says, I don't, I want, I like men and I want to be around men. So she wants to stay at a male prison. And then you have an argument where others say, no, 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 I want to be in a place where my my uh, my identity is confirmed all around me by being socialized with other cisgender women, et cetera. So everybody has different needs and wants and, and ability to feel comfortable in different places as well. I appreciate you saying that at the end, because I think that some people might have certain assumptions uh, if they're listening into this right now and they're not aware of how trans people are treated in prison, they may be wondering, oh, is that an option for people in Illinois um, to elect to stay, um, you know, and not move to the gender that they identify with? And it sounds like there are those options as well. Um, And ultimately, uh, I appreciate you speaking to just the healthcare aspect about 
that part. And it sounds like there are initiatives being in place, especially in regards to mental health, which we know is a huge uh, need uh, for several communities. And mental health is, you know, largely at risk of worsening for trans people who aren't um, receiving health care um, to have that access. So I wanted to follow up on that and just ask, are there certain types of requests that a trans and or non-binary person may have when incarcerated that are harder to fulfill than others? For example, you were discussing the surgeries, hormones, therapy. Um, are there are, is one harder to fulfill than the other? No, not, not in our setting. I would say, though, that there is a standard that has to be met for gender affirming surgery, but it is in line with the WPAP standard. So the expectation for a trans woman, and that has changed a little bit in the standards of care eight, um, it, it, it's uh, becoming a little bit more liberal, but in general, it's, it's still saying the same thing. And these, and some of the, the requirements are really important. This is a life altering procedure that changes your life dramatically. It is the, the responsibility of a healthcare person to do their due diligence to make sure that this is a safe surgery, that the person uh, doesn't have any mental health issues that are not reasonably well controlled. So all of so when you talk about the things that are a little bit higher, uh, high, harder to achieve, uh, that may be for some people it takes a little bit more time. Uh, but I think that is available. I would say that it is available to everyone who is interested. And I don't have the actual numbers in uh, in front of me right now, but we've had more. I can say that we've had more persons that have had uh, gender affirming surgery in in the state of Illinois. Probably that is more than any other state outside of California. We've been really uh, very fortunate and and proud even that we've been able to. Uh, move enough or move plenty of people through that system and hopefully we can get even more over the coming months you know to come but yes gender affirming surgery is going to be obviously a higher level of um responsibility that's going to be required on both sides um we, ne we need to make sure that there's no be serious behavioral issues uh or concerns that you know that we have for the patient no serious mental health issues so those things are are some of the things that are a little harder uh, hormone therapy, at least at IDOC, is available for anyone uh, who has gender dysphoria and who is interested. I think that's probably the easiest. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's a that's honestly, uh, you know, I, I I wasn't expecting that response. I maybe thought maybe it would be harder, but actually, it sounds like it's not. It sounds like, in, at least in Illinois, that the efforts are being made, and so happy to hear that that access has not been at least more limited by the state because uh, for people who may not be familiar though the guidelines and standards of care for receiving gender affirming surgeries are given recommendations by this organization and th those do take time to fulfill but it does sound like um, Illinois is making strides in that we've got work to go do I don't want to make it sound like it's you know it's been perfect but I can definitely tell you that the commitment is there and it comes from a higher level. It's not just us at the prison. Um, and I don't think we have a lot of barriers in terms of attitude, I can say. The support is there. Making it happen and moving through this cumbersome system is a little harder. Because one of the things that happens is, you know, a lot of our patients that are trans patients and in our system, period. And I want to 
you know, make this point. Many of our patients, we have the highest uh, uh, number of patients on the mental health caseload in, of any institution in the in the state of Illinois, at least. Uh, even the the institution charged with caring for uh, people with with serious mental illness, the Department of Human Services, doesn't have as many people on their caseload as those who find themselves in prison. Again, because of the type of population, so it is not easy sometimes for some of our patients. These are some of the true barriers. Their mental health issues need to be reasonably well controlled. Well, their mental health issues are sometimes the reason why they're incarcerated, apart from anything that they may have done in terms of transgender health uh, and transgender, the transgender journey, because we also have prostitution and other types of uh, maybe felonies that may have led to arrest at some point in, in, in the past. But I'm just speaking on mental health issues alone. So there are always those types of confounding uh, those confounding issues that sometimes makes that journey of one year while you're on hormone therapy, uh, where you're, you know, where your mental health is well controlled. Sometimes a year is hard in prison. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you have to make sure certain, you know, like you said, behavioral and standards are met that mentally that they are, um, okay. And like fit to, you know, undergo such a like a transformative, you know, procedure like that so yeah because i'm just going to add like for example if you have a person surely you want a person if they have been self-mutilated you want to get them to surgery right if if, if they're mutilating uh, genitals because they're really trying to change themselves obviously this is a person in pain true dysphoria so if they're requesting gender affirming surgery you want to do that, right? So you definitely want to get them there and relieve the burden of their pain. But at the same time, when a person undergoes that type of surgery, sometimes a person who whose mental health issues are not well controlled won't always do as well as you think postoperatively. There's a lot of things that goes into the post-op care and the post-op journey. Not to mention the fact that when people change on the outside, guess what? Sometimes people still see them the same way. And I think that's probably the most painful thing that I've heard when I've talked to patients um, is going through something like this that's life changing, something they wanted all their life and still feeling that they're not really still seen as a trans woman. I think that's real painful. But you have to be in a mental state where you can handle that, because that is still the reality of the world we live in. So obviously the prison reflects the world. Yes, yes. And another thing I wanted to ask is, and um, the answer can be a clear no, but I, I wanted to also discuss, you know, because in my, in my research, I found that a lot of research has focused on the needs of trans women and maybe exposures of trans women to like viruses or, you know, outcomes of diseases among that population more so than trans men. And I want to acknowledge if there might be any as well, any, um, I guess, differences or even uh, health disparities that you've seen that may differ between the populations? Or do you believe that these populations, trans men and trans women and non-binary people are all being considered equally um, in this um, advocacy for transgender rights in prisons? That is such a great question. So the funny thing is we've met with our trans men and they had a very interesting, like we do this, we go and we meet with, uh, you go to different prisons and we have kind of like a, um, this uh, 
powwow, if you will, where we get a chance to just sit down and chat with uh, our trans persons and they could tell us what their experiences are, some of the things that they they don't like, some of the things they think are really improving. Um, and we get that kind of feedback. That's always good to hear because sometimes uh, as my as, as I've heard, saying goes, there'll be no applause. You know, you feel like you're doing great and you'll be reminded that you are not. But I remember meeting with uh, some trans men and it was really a funny meeting. They were just so, um, they just had a good spirit and it was a great conversation. But the one thing they, they described was how at one point they did feel that the, that, that the trans women got all of the attention. They felt that. And, but then in a very positive way, they said, and we talked about the squeaky wheel getting, uh, you know, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? They did say they felt, though, very empowered, though, by their empowerment, because these were women that were speaking up more. The trans community, the trans women um, are the ones that were making the most noise, if you will. But And because of that, attention to their cause, which they had not necessarily amplified by their own voice, became heard also. So it's two ways to listen to that. And that was the, the take home message that they shared with me that some of them felt that, you know, that maybe there was more attention to them, but then they began to see, hey, this is working for all of us. Because for example, in our state, um, we have tra- we've had trans women surgeries, you know, so vaginoplasties, and we've had uh, top surgeries for men too, trans men. So everyone has benefited, even though they may not have been the louder voice. So I do, I could see, um, you know, where that could, you know, where where there might be some differences. It's, it's not always easy to be as equitable as we would like, because sometimes you don't recognize it. A lot of times we find ourselves, all of us responding, you know, it'd be great if we could be ahead of things, right, in an ideal world. But sometimes you find yourself responding. And when you're responding, you are responding to those who have um, a complaint or a concern. So yes, I do feel like it's not as equitable, um, but not uh, intentional. And, but I think that we have begun to level those playing fields and definitely have done it in the area of surgery and, and also in hormone therapy. But I do think that sometimes our trans women lead the way. Let me say it that way, to put a more positive spin on it. You know what? That's very interesting. Um, as obviously, you know, um, people listening to this are not aware of those conversations going on in the prisons, but uh, you just telling us that uh, again, like, wow, it comes up again. I feel like, you know, there's so much, there's, there's, there's discussion about trans women receiving a lot of the media attention as well. And the, like the, the, uh, attention science as well, like with research more so than trans men. And I love to see that you all are having intentional conversations with each group. Um, and I also want to plug in non-binary people there as well and the um, rights for them to also be respected. And so, um, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to know what you said. And um, I also want to talk about as well, because uh, we've talked a bit about like your conversations with the patients and things, but I also want to also talk about your conversations with people in boardrooms or people uh, who are now have the decision-making power. And so your efforts have centered on meeting with correctional staff and state leadership to allow these individuals to have access to care that has been associated with positive mental health and wellness benefits. What makes those conversations difficult when you're advocating for a population 
with people who may not interact with them or uh, are removed from acknowledging their needs because of stigma? So let me say this. The prison is a lot like a military uh, environment in terms of it's like we spoke earlier about correctional offices, officers, you know, the way the prison runs is the majority of our, for example, when you look at the 11,000 or so uh, people that are employed by the state of Illinois Department of Corrections, you're talking about maybe 1,500 or so that are healthcare. Everybody else is operational staff, right? So the prison is about, by nature and design, is about controlling and making sure that environments are safe, et cetera. So um, with that military mindset, I'm going to call it a military mindset, I would have to say that when certain lawsuits come our way, and and I think, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of um, public record that, you know, that was one of the reasons that kind of pushed on the advocacy that we are currently seeing. So I always say that although uh, a litigation is no fun, Sometimes it's needed uh, in, in, in institutional settings that are slow to change, just like the community, but the institutional settings are, are worse. So with that being said, when there are lawsuits that we have to respond to and the kind of personality and temperament of a prison is you respond to the lawsuit. So I'm just going to say that to start with. And especially when you're dealing with operations people, there has never been a conversation and I can say this wholeheartedly, there's never been a conversation that I've had with anybody uh, at the state level where there was a reluctance to actually follow through on the things that we needed to do. So I've never experienced that. I can't speak to how people actually feel in their hearts, but we have not personally had that challenge. I think where the challenge comes, comes back to the community. So for example, let's think about it. If you have to do a surgery, gender-affirming surgery, no less. Now you have to work with systems, financial systems. You have to figure out how this will be paid for. That wasn't so hard. Thankfully, in the state of Illinois, it's paid through the Medicaid system. So that was one layer that had that was a, a burden that you could say of getting something done that got a chance to be removed. The next thing you have to do is you've got to find your allies, as we talked about, on the outside, because guess what? have any gender affirming surgery surgeons on the inside this is going to happen on the outside you're going to also need your consultants you're going to need your endocrinologist they can really help with complex cases and people who have so many things that are going on yet they still need gender affirming surgery our challenge was more on the outside than it was on the inside to be quite honest because we after you get people ready and you can and you get them approved for surgery. Now the next step is who's going to do it? Who wants a prisoner at their facility and don't mind having them there for 10 days, 7 to 10 days for a vaginoplasty for example. Let's move out of the out of the the the, the hospital because I can tell you especially in certain communities our prison our our individuals in custody are not welcome. That shouldn't surprise anyone. They're just not welcome. And they have to they have to accept them, but they're not necessarily welcome. So now you're trying to plan an elective procedure. You've got to find someone that feels comfortable taking your patients electively. So you've got to have an advocate ally on the outside that understands the importance of this in 
will not just focus on their maybe boutique practice where people have money and resources and less of the baggage and barriers that will come with you know, an individual in custody. We have to find someone who cares enough about this population. So that was one thing. We had. That's the true barrier. Then what happens when a patient who is status post vaginoplasty needs three weeks to three to four weeks in the area? You know these surgeries are not done in downstate Illinois. They're not down, done in central Illinois. You're talking about something that's done exclusively in Chicago or exclusively in St. Louis. So the other barriers are transportation and operational staff. You're now dealing with a time that we're living in where people don't want to be anything related to the police or correctional officers. So we don't have a lot of them anymore. That is something that is going on in every jurisdiction, uh, everywhere. So, but in order to treat patients, you've got to move them and it takes two officers to move them. And then when you move them, they have to stay with them. So now you've removed them from the, the facility and now they're no longer available to tend the facility that is probably short. So this is the second barrier. The third barrier, let's do with the aftercare that I started to speak on. Think about what nursing homes would welcome a post-op trans person that's incarcerated um, who could have a crime for any particular reason. A lot of people in the community would not feel comfortable. Well, guess what? That was our experience as well. So let's say we, 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 get, we get the surgeon. We got that. Let's say we now are able to partition out enough people to do to move them, even though it's hard, but because it's the right or the just or the equitable thing to do for a marginalized population, you decide that you're going to make it work somehow. So you get that. But now that they're there and they finished the surgery, now you have to have a place for them to convalesce. Our particular state did not have a hospital uh, and you can't convalesce four to six hours away from your in the institution that you, you come from. You have to be in Chicago. So that was one of the third and I would say largest barriers. But thankfully, <laughs> due to previous litigation, <laughs> oftentimes it's litigation, sadly, but the good there's you got to look at the positive of it. We were able uh, from former litigation, even before I came on board, we were able and, and ordered really to build a place that would allow people to have uh, great mental health care, but also provide uh, some, I would say, semi-acute level, not like a hospital, but higher level of care. And thankfully, everything aligned, Jalen, in time for us and that hospital that we have that belongs to the Illinois Department of Corrections opened up in time because we could not find a place that would take our patients. And you have to think about it, people, the complaints that people will have, this speaks more to the, just being an incarcerated population. So you, you know, nursing homes tend to be off limits, most nursing homes. So then you have to get a nursing home that's willing um, to deal with such specialized care. So what did we do? Innovation, we created, it once our own hospital opened up, uh, which I said is acute level, but not like on the level of like going to a major hospital, uh, we trained our own 
and so and the major uh the the surgeons and the hospital that did the surgery trained our people and so we were able to do our own care so one of the challenges is the finances so had that hospital Jalen, not been available and built people would have felt like we didn't want to do the surgery when the real issue was we had no place to house them afterwards so these are the, these are so the community once again is where a lot of things start. So the the real challenge wasn't at the governmental level. The support was there. In fact, they were super excited when it happened. So the support was there, even in the boardrooms um, at our at our facilities. Not a problem. In fact, they moved mountains to make things happen. Our biggest barriers were on the outside. Wow, you know that. That seems like a journey of you triumph at the end, but it took a lot to arrive to that facility. And I mean, you know, if I'm not mistaken, during your time with the Department of Corrections, that the first trans person did receive um, gender affirming surgery who was in Illinois prison custody. And that's only after California. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a huge deal. And I think what it what it really speaks to is a model for maybe what does care look like in other states um, at this level. And, you know, I'm from Georgia and I mean, I can't really see them doing this. I mean, unless really things change socially um, and politically. But I also think, you know, that's a that's a model of care that now Illinois has has created that says, okay, this can be done. You know, and Jalen, I think this speaks to where the outside pressure comes from advocacy groups, because there is a strong lobby in um, Illinois um, being a blue state. So I think when they lobby and there is enough synergy, um, then, you know, the lawsuits come. And like I said, none of us love it because here you have a person like me who actually cares, but I'm still in a place where I have to be confronted with it as if I'm on the other side. I'm, I'm, but I'm there as an advocate. And if I'm not there, then many things won't happen because I'm, but because I'm there, I'm going to do everything I can to make it happen. But at the same time, I still welcome, I don't love it, <laughs> but I welcome those lawsuits because sometimes those are needed to push the institution forward because there's so many barriers to make things happen. And then sometimes, like I said, you do feel like you hit a brick wall. I remember when we we got our surgeon, he's amazing. Uh, we got our endocrinologist, amazing. They help to educate us, help to educate the staff. We have our model of care on how we're going to do things. We're helping people. Uh, and when I say people, I mean, not just trans people, we're helping the people who care for them at these facilities, teaching them, training them, uh, making them be accountable. Um, something that I don't think there was enough, there was not enough energy to push those types of initiatives through. Now that that, that has happened, that's on the positive side. But there continues to be, you know, it's going to always be a little bit of a struggle uh, because you know, it's not something that everybody cares about. We go back to, you know, these vulnerable populations. Not everyone cares about it. Like the the, uh, the Supreme Court ruling that you spoke of and the Supreme Court ruling recently on affirmative action. These are the same conversations over and over. Again. Yes, yes. And it, as you said, I mean, there was a, there's a huge lobbying group as well involved in making this stuff happen. Litigation is involved. And, you know, I mean, those are the ways, you know, for 
for, you know, sometimes unfortunate, I mean, circumstances that occur, but, you know, those are the ways that change does occur. And I mean, change can occur. And so. And when you said that, I was thinking to myself, I often wondered why uh, some of the red states hadn't been affected by this. I found it very interesting because if you, because these are federal lawsuits. So if it's not state, if these are federal lawsuits against a particular entity, I often wonder, or maybe those things are happening, but maybe not as public because they're not moving as fast, or maybe the uh, certain states are just not responding to it. I'm not quite sure. Um, not sure, but uh, we're responding to it in the state of Illinois. I could definitely say that. I'm learning myself, getting my you know degrees and taking like public health law classes. So but I mean, we're going to see with the lawsuits that happened and with the overturns, um, what happens for the queer community, what happens for LGBTQ people in terms of advancing in our rights. And then um, how does that also improve the the status of access to health care and uh, health outcomes for the population? Um, because I believe in the systemic sort of level trickle down effect when you have right like lack of access to medicaid and a population that is already poor and lgbtq people are being discriminated against from even having a job how does all that then come together and say that can increase somebody's risk of suicide that can increase somebody's risk of um any other chronic condition you know diabetes cardiovascular disease so that's the purpose of the podcast is really trying to talk about that and i mean it sounds like there's been some wins. Big deal, what you just mentioned. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I just wanted to say that we didn't have Medicaid all the time for every patient. That is a huge deal. So what happens even when people are, we have it now, but you know, when people leave, they will leave with Medicaid so they can get insurance. But this Medicaid across the board wasn't, this is legislation. So um, when this young person asked the question, well, how, do you, how do you justify you know, working in a prison? I'm like, the people, your legislation, our country decided that this was the way that we want to handle people who committed offenses, um, even minor offenses, or even drug offenses because of being, you know, uh, drug addicted. This is the way our country has decided that they want to manage uh, those who uh, uh, create or commit infractions against the law. So with that being said, do you want them forgotten about or do you want someone that cares standing there doing what they can in a system that is not perfect, but really fighting. And honestly, Jaylene, I can tell you, it's not a perfect system by any means. And the optics really don't look great all the time. But I can definitely say that the people I work personally, and I, my hand to God on this, and I don't do that often, that the people I work side by side with in my particular health service office are people who really care uh, from the depths of their heart, even if they don't understand, they will fight for what they know is right for the patient. And I'm just, we we do though need young people like yourself, and when you're talking about effective lobby, to look at the laws to see how you can change some of those things. Uh, for example, most recently, we had the Joe Coleman uh, Act, which was to actually help move people uh, who were very sick um, and have less than six months to live or are unable to take care of their own ADLs uh, to actually remove them from prison. Because what are you accomplishing? 
So unfortunately, though, on even on that, you have a medical component that looks at that. And then there is an operations or security component. So we don't make the full decision. We can say because it's a prison and it has those two factors that you're always looking at. But to, but to, to get to circle back to your point, those are the things that we have to do as a community if we really want to create change. We have and we have to look at the laws that are affecting the people in a systemic sense, like you mentioned. Yes, yes. And that really just just goes into my last question as we finish up here. And really, um, you know, I was going to ask you, what types of changes do you see are still needed to achieve health equity for this population? But it also seems like how those changes would be made are pretty clear. And that's through changing, you know, the laws that are on the books. There's other ways too, though, uh, Jalen, what I think is needed desperately is not what people are thinking about. We need people like you and some of your your uh, colleagues to consider coming into correctional health care. We need new talent. We need people with your type of mindset and ideas, advocates, true advocates at heart, you know, to come in and represent and take care of the patients. That's what we really need. That's one of the changes that we need. And that's one of the things that, that we're working on and why I do what I do, having these conversations with you and at other national forums like SNMA, I want to raise awareness about correctional health care raise awareness about some of the more marginalized groups that really need an extra TLC uh, within a prison system. But also we need people working on uh, other aspects of like, like we talked about legislation, lobbying, even volunteering um, and being a part of the community. There's a lot of people, believe it or not, that volunteer quite a bit of time. Uh, with and, they're, they're, and you can create, especially while I'm there, you can create a pathway uh, of something new and innovative that you can do uh, with, you know, some of our incarcerated people. So for me, that's what gives me the most hope is that we can inspire young people. First of all, hopefully we find ways to to reduce incarceration uh, and mass incarceration. Yes. Thank you for speaking up for correctional health care. Um, like I said, my dad is a corrections officer and, you know, he interacts with patients um, that, you know, have to be also held in custody. And, you know, that type of care is, you know, it can be quite quite interesting from, you know, certain perspectives, but I mean, I think ultimately, you know, how do we make it possible? I think it's something you've also mentioned and, you know, how do, how do we make this possible? And it sounds like, you know, the changes can be made through, you know, the lobbying, the advocacy, but also working through and having passionate people uh, in the, in the correctional facilities. So Thank you for speaking on that. And thank you for answering my questions and just having a conversation. And we can talk more. And I definitely want you to let, for the listeners there that are interested in trans health, and especially if you have young people that are coming and you can share this with them between their first year and their second year, if they want to do some interesting things during the summer uh, where they have some time, we are welcome. If they want to do things year round, that includes you or other folks. Uh, we always have openings for internships and we can create a space for you and you can pilot and become innovative alongside us. At least I welcome that. And I think while I have the opportunity to create room 
for bright and talented people who care, I'm going to to do that. So I want to extend that 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 option out there. Thank you, Dr. Conway. I think that people listening in who are passionate about this would love to yeah follow up and try to learn more. And so um, maybe I can follow up with you after this and try to think of ways to um, outreach about how people can get involved if they want to in regards to advocacy for transgender rights. So. Yes, sounds good to me. Alrighty, at this point, I will uh, end the recording and thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. <laughs> Going back to the main message of our conversation, what happens in the community mirrors what happens in the penal system. Trans and gender diverse people who are incarcerated face challenges that deserve the attention of our medical system. Indeed, the stakes may be even higher, such that violence and discrimination may limit the ability for transgender people who are incarcerated to seek care. Dr. Conway's pioneering work in this area allows us to see a model for trans and gender diverse incarcerated people so they don't go without life-saving and affirming care within a structure that already disadvantages them. People in the prison system may also benefit from the expansion of rights, such as gender-affirming care access, therapy visits for gender incongruence, or wish to live in facilities that align with their gender. As well, diversity exists in the experiences of trans people in prisons as we've acknowledged. Awarding transgender and gender diverse people inside prisons the opportunity to live authentically gives us closer to achieve an equitable healthcare system for LGBTQ plus people. What an incredible way to end the first season of the Equity Podcast. I have had such joy interviewing, conversating, learning from and with all of the important guests and you listeners who have provided me advice on how to improve next season, people who have spoken to me about where they see the future of the episodes going, people who have given me new ideas and uh, new opportunities to interview new people. I'm so excited to bring to everybody next season more deep conversations about how to create LGBTQ plus health equity, what we're still learning from the history and the beautiful history that exists within LGBTQ plus culture. I am very happy to say that the Kickstarter has been funded fully and surpassed. The, the original amount was 750, I believe we're at like 815 um, at the time of this recording and we've probably surpassed that at this point. So I'm super, super elated and cannot wait to put the funds to great use in providing you all more content and ensuring we're talking with people who provide excellent perspective and have amazing expertise in correcting injustices that affect the queer population so that we can move forward as a society and care for each other as human beings that we are because our humanity that lies at the center of how we make decisions and how we triumph through difficulty. So again, thank you so much. I am super, super appreciative of you listening in to any episode and take care. I'll see you next season. <laughs>